Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is our second episode in our special series of fixing mental health care in America. And just for us to be able to bring wonderful content to you, we're not going to be able to do this series one week right after the other. So you'll get some of our regular episodes mixed in throughout. But this is our second episode following up on our interview with our wonderful friends over at the Rand Corporation. If you haven't listened to that first episode yet, go ahead and go back and listen to that one and come back to this one. But in this episode, we are talking with California State Senator Henry Stern, as well as LA County Department of Mental Health Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Curly Bonds, talking about the ways that California's laws are shifting and ways that they're kind of holding us back and being able to treat people with severe mental illness, especially as it relates to the ongoing homeless crisis that is happening here. This conversation will be primarily around California initiatives and things that are happening or have happened in California. But I do think it's a good model for other programs in in your state where you are. And so I think it's an important listen because California can be the jumping off point and the, the testing ground for best practices. There's a lot of stuff that we bring up that's very California specific. We'll put links to all of it in the show notes, but we wanted to give you a couple of things right up front so that you can at least take it in without having to stop and <laughs> head over to the show notes over at MTSG Podcast to, to try to understand what we're talking about. Trying to keep this as brief as possible here. A couple of things that are mentioned are things like Laura's Law and Assisted Outpatient Therapy and the Lanterman Petra Short Act. All of these are California laws that have been replicated in some other locations as well that define what a grave disability is as far as needing to be able to intervene with people with severe mental illness who may not have the capacity to understand their own ability to either enter into treatment or recognize their need to enter into treatment. Laura's Law specifically is the result of a woman named Laura Wilcox who was killed by an untreated person with severe mental illness. That law was signed into California in 2009. And I think the important thing to take away is that there's also some different taxes that got put into place that have funded several different programs. One of them is MHSA or Mental Health Services Act, and that was implemented in 2004. And that was a tax on the over $1 million personal income. And that expanded intensive services. 
The final program that was discussed was also a pilot program that Department of Mental Health is looking to start, which is the Home or Homeless Outreach Mobile Engagement Team. And that also is kind of aligned with this. How do we help folks that are grappling with severe mental illness? And it has mechanisms for treatment as well as conservatorship. As Katie said, we will include that stuff in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. Here's the episode. We are joined today by Senator Henry Stern, representing California's 27th Senate District, and also my senator, and very glad to have him representing me and all of the people of the San Fernando Valley and extended areas around that. And part of where we come into this is following up on an article that Senator Stern wrote with Dr. Jonathan Shering from the Los Angeles County of Department of Mental Health that appeared in the Los Angeles Times in December of 2020, addressing mental health issues and especially some of the limitations of California's laws around being able to work with clients and especially from the mental health side of things requires a whole lot of changes to California's laws. And California has traditionally been very forward thinking when it comes to a lot of mental health laws. But as this article in the LA Times points out, sometimes this can be limiting to being able to deliver a lot of the mental health treatments that people like Katie and myself and all of our listeners here are supposed to be doing in our jobs. So thank you very much for joining us, spending some time with us to be able to talk about how can we actually implement some of these changes into the world to better be able to deliver mental health services, especially as it comes to our homeless population. Well, thanks for having me, Kurt and Katie. I I sincerely appreciate it, you know, and just tell you, you know, I come at this not as a clinical expert and, you know, I'm I'm an attorney by trade. So I, I do have that sort of sensibility, I suppose. But I also come to this as just a layperson living in LA and you know, going through this over the last few years and watching homelessness change. So we weren't able to do a joint interview with Senator Henry Stern and Dr. Curly Bonds. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit here between them. This is Dr. Curly Bonds. I'm Dr. Curly Bonds, and I'm the chief medical officer for the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. So I am responsible for overseeing all of the clinical operations in our department. We happen to be the largest public mental health system in the country. We have about 6,000 employees, and I primarily oversee directly the psychiatrists, which they're about a little over 230. And I'm also responsible for policy parameters, sort of the clinical guidelines, how the work gets done, sort of the on the boots on the ground person to make sure that everything that we're supposed to be doing according to our responsibility as the county's mental health plan actually happens. The first question I have is, in an ideal world, what would mental health care look like? We've got a lot of different people within the homeless population. And looking at your article, it was very clear that there's different ways that people are, are ending up homeless without mental health care. And, and I'll let you go into more of the details of that. But I think for me, what are we aiming for in an ideal world? We're aiming for, I think, a future where mental health care isn't some separate service from a broader suite of services that at present is essentially a bureaucratic labyrinth for somebody with 
zero means and no trust left in the system whatsoever. And people aren't navigating our system. And so, you know, the future to me is a place where substance abuse treatment, funding and services aren't separated in some silo over with our public health departments. And then field psychiatry and medication and behavioral treatment aren't siloed in Department of Mental Health. And then housing dollars and services aren't then stuck over in housing community development. And so you have one person, a real person that you're actually trying to engage and not just engage once and say, why don't you want this? Why don't you want this service? But to be able to relentlessly engage, to be there every day, to have familiar faces coming back time and time again and breaking down barriers where maybe it starts with talk to Dr. Partovi and you know on Kid Row, it starts often with treating a boil or providing food or sort of those initial trust building touches, and then can accelerate all the way into housing placement, into treatment beds, into new medication adherence, into a whole new plan and a very intensive kind of care. Right now, it's wooden, it's bureaucratic, and no wonder a lot of people on the street don't trust us because you don't know if the same person's going to show up the next day and you've never heard of this person before. So is that really a great housing opportunity or am I getting pushed into something I shouldn't be a part of? It's to try to sort of humanize and unify our interface with the most vulnerable people among us. And, you know, that's going to take consistency and integration in a a multi-layered government process that heretofore has not been particularly tuned to the service to the customers we're we're serving. Well, the ideal looks like a system that's recovery-oriented and person-centered, and it really respects the values of human dignity and respects the need of people to direct their own outcomes and to participate in their care. So it's really important that people have options and that we offer services in the least restrictive environment, that we give them what they need, not what we think they need. So wraparound services that include everything from visits with therapists, assistance from peers, people with lived experience should be a part of the equation, making sure that The professionals who work with them respect their unique cultures, who they are as people, and that they can speak the right language and provide services that are really just comprehensive and least intrusive as possible. What is keeping us from being able to do that? How are our laws and our systems preventing us from reaching that kind of idealized care that's leading to the mental health crisis that many people are facing now? Well, I start out by saying, As a psychiatrist, I'm very focused on what we can do. So I'd like to say that in some ways, the laws do help. They definitely protect an individual's autonomy. But I would think where we fall short is when someone doesn't really have capacity to know that they need help. Our laws are really all about self-determination. But when you have a person who has an acute psychotic episode, or say a mania, someone who really doesn't have the wherewithal to make well-informed decisions, then the laws are kind of a fail-first system. For those individuals, we really depend on them to kind of know they need help and to seek it when they need it. When it gets into involuntary treatment, 
they're just a complex morass of legalities, different things that people need to meet criteria in terms of how many times you're hospitalized, how many times you've been arrested before we can really move forward with involuntary treatment. Our, our system's really sympathetic, but I would say that it leaves those folks who are what we refer to as gravely disabled to kind of fend for themselves. And they're often not the ones who are coming out for treatment on their own. They're languishing in our streets, people experiencing homelessness who just get kind of overlooked by society. A couple of the things that in the LA Times article that Senator and Dr. Sharing had talked about were a couple of the laws that specifically need to be changed. Uh, Laura's Law and the Glanterman-Petrist Act that Mm -hmm. would allow for some of this better care. What kind of changes are we looking for to those two specific areas of law that would help to put some of this stuff into motion? The past conversation about reforms to the LPS Act, as well as Laura's Law, have really centered around the question of whether you define a grave disability as merely a physical condition, a physical health question, someone who physically cannot take care of themselves or maybe a risk to themselves or others, but it is not brought in some of these other factors around mental health that we think in many ways do reduce people's capacity to be able to engage in care. The the origins of the LPS Act deals with conservatorships, not just for folks living on the streets, but this is also what's used in trust and probate, right? For people who are experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's or issues where they no longer have capacity sort of built around that loved one who no longer can sort of make some of those legal decisions for themselves. Because a conservatorship where you're actually no longer in full control and full capacity over your major legal decisions, but you you end up submitting that to your guardian or to your conservator with the county or a designee. It is a very aggressive and a very comprehensive kind of status. And it's not one that necessarily you want to go to first. That's the most extreme case. And I think we're trying to now reset when we look at what a Laura's law or an LPS law reform would be, not just to look at the definition, say, of grave disability, but to put a model together that's going to, to sort of articulate a much broader framework that starts from this place of relentless engagement that starts from this place of integrated services and that starts from a rights-based approach as opposed to a sort of regulatory or sort of government-dictated approach. What Dr. Sharon and I have been thinking about since we wrote that article and sort of working on is, can we start to articulate a different kind of right, not just the civil liberty to do whatever you want, but the right to live safely? And if we can start to reframe this issue, not so much as who's going to be conserved and who won't be conserved, and what do we need to do to the law to make more people eligible for conservatorship, I think if we stay in that frame, we're not going to make progress. I think if we redefine it as a rights-based issue, as a matter of both budget and policy, and as a way to sort of combine Whatever those legal reforms that are needed, say, in our assisted outpatient treatment laws or in our conservatorship laws, along with adequate resources and a system that's going to work, we're going to be able to punch through this impasse we've faced over the years. Because up until this point, disability rights groups, 
civil rights groups have very validly, even the behavioral health experts, you know, our county officials say, well, you're going to go tell us to do a bunch more work, essentially, right? You're going to say there's all these gravely disabled people and we want to bring them in. Our caseload's already at 50 to one. So what, what is it that you actually want us to be doing here? You'll audit us, you criticize us, and then like we have no ability, even if we wanted to bring more people in, to even care for the people we've got already. When you have social workers with 50 cases on their desk, there's no way folks in that kind of condition can get dealt with. And so that's the big reset we're looking for. There are specifics within assisted outpatient treatment and LPS reform that we can, I'd love to get into. I mean, we can talk a little bit about, say, not just the 5150 process, but the 5250 process, right? And what longer term temporary holds look like, as opposed to the long-term conservatorship that's a multi-year process? Is there a intensive near-term engagement that we can reach where we get people back to adherence on their medication? I mean, I think of the, the poor family down in Orange County with the gentleman who was killed by two cops after a jaywalking incident gone wrong. And he was having a total mental health crisis. And a year prior, had been like coaching his kid's soccer team. But from non-adherence to his meds and a, and a breakdown and a few more things, suddenly finds himself into a confrontation that's life-ending. We may not have had to, say, conserve that individual and, say, put him in a county-locked bed for two years. It may have just been a matter of approaching him with the right field psychiatrist or the right kind of care out in the streets, trying to bring him back both with his family, but also just getting adherence back on medication and then making some decisions. I'm very interested in not just the sort of the big ticket item of how can we expand the use of conservatorships and amend grave disability, or how can we compel more assisted outpatient treatment, but really the services and the, the resources that we want to wrap around that so that we don't have to do it or that we can get actually caseloads. I mean, what I'm interested in, what does it look like when you actually have a one-to-one caseload? What does it look like when you actually have folks like you, right? Therapists or behavioral health experts out in the field, actually able to manage their client's relationship, just like you would a normal patient, just like you would somebody else, right? And not process them through. It might be expensive, right? We're talking about, it might cost us $100,000 a person, for instance, to get them both you know, $25,000 for a housing subsidy, $25,000 for not just a subsidy for that housing, but the ongoing costs of maintaining it, $25,000 for the services provided, and another $25,000, say, for the people, the actual budget, not just the medical treatment, but the budget itself. So say it's $100,000 a person. You know, why, why not go look at the thousand most vulnerable people in Los Angeles and say, let's be that intensive. Like if we actually invested that much up front and had that kind of integrated solution, could we maybe have a very different conversation with people experiencing homelessness who are also going through a mental health crisis than we are right now, which is you run into a confrontation with the police or you end up in a locked bed or forced hospitalization or you're just left to die. None of those work. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. 
From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. For me, when I'm listening to you, I hear balancing the tension between self-advocacy and self-determination on one hand and this idea around getting care to people who need it most. And oftentimes that is something where we get into whether it's social inequity or inappropriate levels of care. And and you're already talking about this, but I just wanted to kind of go specifically to this tension because I think there are always, there are always going to be people who then define what is the point at which someone is able to be conserved or at what point can they be compelled to treatment? And, and in reading the article, there was talks about advanced directives and there was also talks about having all different folks at the table and, and making sure that every stakeholder, including people who are in recovery, that kind of stuff. So I just want to, to talk a little bit more about that because I know for our audience, I think our audience holds that tension a lot around where is self-determination, self-advocacy, and the ability for someone to get the care they need and, and to be able to, to determine that and to not have racism, you know, inequities, those kinds of things get into those decisions. But also recognizing that we have people on the street who potentially with intensive engagement could have a much higher quality of life and 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 truly do better in the world. So how are you looking at balancing that tension? Because I think it is such a hard line to walk. And it's so hard because at some point someone has to make a decision and that's going to be impacted by that person's perspective, their, their history, that kind of stuff. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, when you say pre-directive, I think what comes to mind for me is an advanced directive. And I guess a little bit of history This started out in medicine back in the eighties and nineties, when people were known to have life-threatening conditions, they were able to say, what do I want to have done in the event that my life is threatened? For example, if my heart stops, do I want CPR and chest compressions? If I can't breathe on my own, do I want to be put on a breathing machine? So they're able to determine ahead of time before they get into a crisis, or even when you're admitted to the hospital, sign this form, tell us what you want done, what you don't want done. And if you're not able to tell us, who do you want to assign that responsibility or authority, be it a loved one, a spouse, a family member. And those advanced directives are now sort of a codified part of the medical record. It's a federal law that I think when you go into the hospital, you're supposed to fill out one of these and then the staff were obligated to abide by it. With psychiatric crises, they are not always life-threatening, but let's just say that someone comes in and perhaps they're so impaired by their symptoms of psychosis Maybe they're hallucinating or they're paranoid. They can't trust anyone. They can't make good decisions. If you have a pre-directive or an advanced directive in place, they've thought about this ahead of time. Who do I trust? Who do I want to be able to make decisions about how I want you to help me? Do you want to 
if you want to give me medications, which ones work best for me? If I absolutely don't want medication, what are the alternatives that I'd like you to try? And when done correctly, they are very collaborative. And I would say they result in less course of care. People who have the capacity to dictate or designate who I want to make decisions on my behalf, what I want done for me, how I want it done, and where I want it done can avoid things like having to send out the police, putting people in handcuffs, and then taking them off involuntarily to a to a place where they're frightened and afraid without being able to say, this is what works best for me. Yeah, I mean, it's an inherently human enterprise, and it is ultimately going to be a judgment call. I think I'm really interested in using clinical expertise to drive that decision-making. I think that's what starts to neutralize a lot of that tension is when you have people who's, you know, have taken their Hippocratic oath and who is their whole job is care. And they have that really acute focus on the individual that they can then have a whole suite of tools in their toolbox to use. If we in government say are just trying to automatically slice up the you know, the population of people experiencing homelessness into categories and sort of pigeonhole them and just make bureaucratic wooden decisions from up in Sacramento or even in behind some desk at county, that doesn't rebuild trust. The empowerment of our field psychiatrists, our behavioral health therapists, you know, the people out there who know to make those judgment calls and recognize that it's a spectrum and it's not just a binary set of decisions, that's gonna, I really think, cut through a lot of this tension. You guys, you just don't have time when you're working in the, with this population. It's the same as being, you know, call it a public defender, right? Anytime you're dealing with people who don't have means, public defenders have 50 or 60 clients too. It's like, can you really go into court and advocate for your client well when you just have like 15 minutes to work on it? It's the same thing. If you have 60 conservatees or, or even in your community, say you've got a regional field operation, your field psychiatrist trying to look after one person for all of Skid Row. That's what we got right now out there, right? I mean, it's like, hey, let, good luck, Dr. Sharon. Like, I want an army of behavioral health therapists and social workers and field psychiatrists where we, and it takes money, and it takes money investing in people. And it's not just taking money investing it in the capital side of it, because that's been the tendency is, yes, housing first, right? But step zero is you know, if you're not adhering to your medication or you're not, you know, you don't actually have a relationship with your, your doctor at all. It's a little bit arbitrary to just pluck a person out of the ether and throw them into housing. That's not a, a formula for success. So I really think empowering, you know, our experts in the medical community, you guys are the best at making these tough ethical judgment calls, right? That's where, that's what you go to school for. That's what you train for. That's what you build up over time. So I don't know. I know that doesn't maybe answer specifically, you know, how it's going to work, but it, I think that model, we have been under-resourcing that part of the services for so long. No wonder no one trusts anybody. This money piece is, it's a hard sell, especially when the costs that you're talking about are not going to be able to be statically looked at as far as this is just money out the door. But when we look at dynamic scoring of legislation where this is going to save money in emergency rooms, this is going to save money in the correction system. Part of this is looking at, you know, in order to pay mental health people to go and have those 
clinicians be on a caseload of one to one, one to four, whatever makes sense, is being able to provide the support and structure for those people to be in those positions. And mental health being one of the underpaid places of this, this is kind of a two-part question here is how do you sell dynamic bills like this when it comes to scoring to your colleagues in the legislature? And how do we make sure that our mental health clinicians are being paid at a, a place in what is a long, slow process where there's very little positive day-to-day work that respects their workload enough that keeps them in those positions to see this fully successfully through? Yeah, and it's long money too. It's not short money. It's not just boom, grant metrics. What's it look like in a year? Give it back. I think the political cycle doesn't always align with the treatment cycle. You see sometimes that political urgency that we need a win. I'm under too much pressure. I've got to show results. You know, what's the press release? We as legislators need to expand our political horizon and bring our community along with us. And I, you know, I will say, I think for all the frustrated neighbors and homeowners and people who are out there feeling uncomfortable, you know, crossing the freeway underpass or, you know, walking to the coffee shop or walking their kids to school or, and that, that animosity and the tension that's, that's ratcheting up around LA before they were attacking this governor for the pandemic, the, it was really homelessness driving it. Those sensitivities, they're not ill-founded. I can't say that legislators need to ignore their people more. But because they should be impatient. But I think people are willing to invest. I, I think you've seen voters time and time again say, actually, we're willing to put big money up. H and HHH and LA, for instance, like those aren't those aren't small amounts of money. And even MHSA, its original, you know, the proposition that now Mayor Steinberg helped push through years back. There's the public has a political will. The current thesis, I think, for for trying to build a consensus around folks like me and in my line of work who like a short-term victory is there's an allure to accountability and there's an allure for innovation right now where we say it's not just a matter of like, how can you show the math in a one-year time frame for something that actually the math lines up in a five-year time frame, but how can we just show that we're fixing the problems that at least are in our purview. You know, the fact that the Department of Public Health controls all the substance use abuse funding, and that's where all the substance use treatment money goes, and it's a totally separate silo for MHSA, is really inefficient and doesn't make a lot of sense. So the pitch I'm trying to come up with is, why don't we just give it a shot? We don't have to spend endless money here. We don't have to commit ourselves to an entirely new model. But at least let's try some pilots and see if they work and see if spending big up front and investing in people and that service side, not just the bed and the infrastructure, if that starts to pay dividends and give us give us the time we need. But like, why can't we take a chunk right now, pull it across a few silos, blow up some of those boxes and the, the public, I think, will be up for it. If they say, oh, you guys are actually trying to do something creative here. And now I see there's somebody on my street corner with that yellow polo shirt or the purple polo, pick your polo shirt color, right? <laughs> if they start to see, uh, if they start to see you, 
and not, by the way, it doesn't have to be that they call 911 then, but when they call 211 and somebody actually picks up, like block by block, we're going to start to win people back. And then the political patience is going to increase. And then the willingness to do the long-term funding is going to go. So I'm really eager to start. And Dr. Sharon's home pilot to me is really exciting and very small scale right now. But that is somewhere I think we're saying, can we actually put some real firepower into a, into a program like that? And again, 500 of the most vulnerable, 1,000 of the most vulnerable, and just be upfront with people. Say it's, it's not all 75,000 people, and this isn't the entire population, and we're not overpromising, but here's what we are going to try to do. And just be really honest with folks and not, uh, you know, we get in trouble when we, we pretend like we're going to solve it all. I don't think we solve all this overnight. I, I, I really don't. 10 or 15 years ago, there were advanced directives like this that some of the wellness centers were were training on and those kinds of things. And it seems like such a great idea. It seems like it's not necessarily taken off. Do you have any sense of whether or not something, I mean, it was pages of things with who's going to be with me for different reasons. I mean, it was basically an advanced almost treatment plan depending on status. It was really, really great. Do you have any sense of if that's something that would hold up if people are actually using those things? Because it seems like a really wonderful tool. And and I I learned it like 10 or 15 years ago with LA County Department of Mental Health. <laughs> yeah, it is a wonderful tool. And I, I'm glad that you were aware of it back then. Unfortunately, I don't think that every corner of the mental health professional world knows about these. For one, uh, there's the problem of our system is very fragmented. If you're, say, in the Kaiser system, or you're in the private insurance system, or if you're in the public system, then those are all three different systems. If you're in managed care, you might have that filed in your chart at your managed care provider. If you're enrolled in the Department of Mental Health, you might have it at one hospital that you've been admitted to, but the outpatient clinic where you get your treatment may not know about this. So one problem is collaboration and coordination of of information across these different barriers, these different silos of care. Another is making sure that consumers or clients who are coming in for services are aware that these exist. There is a law in California, the Healthcare Decisions Law, that provides a template, but it's really focused more on medical issues about some of the things I mentioned earlier about CPR, chest compressions, those sorts of things. And you have to kind of write in and anticipate that I might have a mental health crisis And for those who've been in the mental health system before, they might have the wherewithal to do that. But the majority of folks walking around, they're not anticipating that they're going to be in the hospital because of an attempt to hurt themselves or they're going to, you know, lose their ability to think clearly and and not be paranoid. So people just don't often think about it proactively. Well, and I think there's also the element of there are folks who don't get to a place where they really can do that type of planning, whether it's kind of ongoing delusions or, or paranoia. And so there, there seems like even with these pre-directives or advanced directives, there's still a population of folks who can have a vague idea of how they might care for themselves, be able to elucidate that, and then still end up, you know, really gravely disabled, but not qualifying as gravely disabled. And so it becomes something where it just, it feels like there's a lot of folks that are just stuck, whether even if these pre-directives come into regular usage, there's folks I think that wouldn't use them because of their paranoia or who would not use them because they didn't think to. And so how do we reach more of 
of these folks who are really needing treatment or needing some sort of support? Well, I think there are two components to that. And I, I would agree with everything that you just said. One is educating the people who are receiving care that this is an option. And I think it's also educating the people who are providing that care, the psychiatrists, the therapists, the nurses to say, when someone isn't in a crisis, this is a conversation that we need to have. I would say one of the other barriers is making sure that family members and others know about this so that when the person is in a crisis, they know to say, hey, I have this piece of paper or I have this form and I know where it's located and I can provide it to the paramedics or the hospital staff so that when a crisis comes, that it'll be actually utilized. I worry that these types of things are sort of like a power for, I guess, a healthcare attorney, power of attorney that people need to know that it exists. It's like a medical will, so to speak, but it requires two signatures or a notarization. So someone else has to know about it because I think too often those folks who don't have them, they're not engaged in care in the first place. And for people who are engaged in care, often the focus is on solving the immediate crisis, putting out the fires. But what we need to do is talk to them about when things are pretty calm and good, let's talk about what works for you, what heals you so that we can make sure we put those things in place when you get to the point of crisis. One of the things that Senator Stern has a couple of bills out this year on is about assisted outpatient treatment and some of the ways of making that more successful. From your perspective on the boots on the ground side, what does successful assisted outpatient treatment look like? Here in California, we have Laura's Law that passed back in 2002. It wasn't until about 2014 or 15 that we actually got it up and running. So it's a relatively new concept of assisted outpatient treatment, which is court-ordered or mandated. Unfortunately, it's, again, one of those systems where people have to fail first before they get enrolled. About half of the people who are approached with this, which is to say, hey, we're going to ensure that you get the services that you need, they have to agree to it. And if they don't, then you go through the legal process. At that point, it sometimes puts up this adversarial relationship with the care providers is a problem from the beginning if someone doesn't agree to it. So you really have to sell people on what those services are, what the benefits are. And a colleague of mine at UCLA, Joel Braslow, has done a lot of research in this area nationwide. And he's talked about how the things that people really want, again, if we can emphasize those things, like you'll have access to therapy, you'll have access to medication should you desire it, will help with transportation, will help you with employment, will help you with organizing your life better, being able to stay out of the hospital, to stay out of jail. I think if we can emphasize those aspects of assisted treatment as opposed to the coercive mandated parts, there's, um, I would say, a small percentage of folks who respond to what's called the black robe effect. You know, the idea that someone has said in a courtroom that you have to do this, they'll actually do it. But I think the treatments themselves are only effective and people only stick around for them if it's something that they benefit from, something that they want, because a lot of the people who don't succeed in outpatient, assisted outpatient, are the ones who are lost to follow-up. They just disappear from whatever program that they're enrolled in. Oftentimes for those, that level of services or resources, so there's childcare and, and transportation or financial support for families that need rent or, or those types of things, just kind of keeping folks moving forward out of jail, out of the systems, those kinds of things. There's a lot of bureaucracy that can get in the way of that, or there's just a lot of service providers who are doing, who are pushing a lot of paper. And so do you have a sense of how 
these types of intensive services with lots of resources could be implemented and still be something where clinicians can focus on their clinical work and the bureaucracy is diminished. I, I know this is all very, very pie in the sky, but like that there's, is there a way for us to do high quality work and let clinicians be clinicians? Because there's so much else that ends up like a lot of unfunded mandates that end up in some of these policies that providers have to navigate around to try to have enough money to pay for providers to do the services. Wow, there's a lot packed into that question. I know. And, uh, I, know. I, I, I have a little <laughs> have to be of careful about it. <laughs> that, that, I, that I don't walk out of this interview and lose my job. But I'll have to say, <laughs> we have to let clinicians do what clinicians do best, take yes. care of people. And yes. I, I think this is something that our director, Dr. Sharon, says a lot. They need to take care of the people, not the charts. And by yes. that, what we mean is that, you know, I think sometimes we take well-intentioned, motivated, ambitious, energetic young people, we put them into a system and we say, you know, we need you to stay here until eight or nine o'clock tonight to finish documenting what you did during the day, as opposed to spending your time doing those things. So we have enormous requirements and I, I get it. You know, we have to be responsible as a system to the government that we're spending taxpayers' money in an intentional and meaningful way, that we're not just off providing meaningless treatments. And we also need to track outcomes. But I think there are only so many times and so many ways that you can measure someone's progress, as opposed to just sort of sitting back and saying, let's spend a moment just talking about what's going on with you, what you need. I think we need to make it so that the documentation requirements are less onerous. And I also feel like if we could come up with a system, and this is something that we're attempting to do, that focuses on what happens at the end, not happens during the middle of treatment, but where do people go? Do they get back to their lives? Do they get back into school? Do they get back into meaningful relationships? Let those be the measures as opposed to how many minutes of psychotherapy or crisis management or medication support that you provide. Because that when we slice awesome. it up like that, it causes people to sort of like... Uh, it shouldn't be like taking your car to the mechanic and they give you an itemized inventory of everything that that happened. It should be, hey, car runs smoothly, passes the smog check, you can go X number of miles per hour. And that's what the goal is. And I think we should look at people, not the way that we look at, say, things, because we're really looking at outcomes at the end of the game. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I've worked in some of the Department of Mental Health contracted agencies in the past, and, and on some of these programs I worked in, the CalWORKs program worked with a lot of homeless and, and different populations of adults. And I think there's there seems to be less of a political will to throw money at adults. Um, I, I also worked with children and, and it seems like there's there's a little bit more MHSA seems more aligned on the on the kids' side than the adult side. So so I think that there's there might be some pushback. So I'm just gonna to leave that there. But the thing that I kept seeing, especially in the adults' programs, is this need to have these metrics and outcome measures. And I think that those are very credible, like we need to do that. But oftentimes, the onus is on the service providers to spend countless hours doing reports. And that is not service. That's not client care, clearly. And so to me, I... I I'm so appreciative of hearing around this, like, let's, let's invest in people, let's invest in services. But 
Is there a mechanism to try to make sure that these service providers are also at the table in designing these programs? Because oftentimes there ends up with a lot of unfunded mandates, which is we need this yep. form in triplicate, obviously with digital, we're not doing triplicate, but like, it's, it's kind of that <laughs> we need this report at this time. We need this to be filled out at this time. You know, there's these five things that you have to do when you first meet a right. client. And not only is that an kind of onerous on the service provider, but it can also be a, a friction or a barrier to treatment for the folks that we're trying to serve. So, uh, do you have a sense of, of how that's being addressed? Because I think for me, I get very excited about this idea. I've worked in wraparound programs. I've worked with folks that were in, you know, in South Los Angeles on the streets, you know, like I, I'm excited, but I also recognize that there is a potential for a lot of unfunded mandates, which make programs not only not immediately effective, but also not sustainable. Yes. And I think we've seen it happen. I mean, we've seen, you know, we have this MHSA accountability committee and there's, you know, we saw an audit come out from the state that we had worked on. And and even with that, you know, state auditors report that we asked for on our LPS and conservatorship programs, it's plans, audits, metrics, reports, all that without money is just an exercise in circular bureaucracy. And it's a very dangerous thing. To whom much is given, much is expected. But to whom nothing is given, I don't, the the expectations can't really be there. So I think if we, I'm interested in the experiment around a pilot, you know, this kind of local pilot, not just being one of a different kind of service, but also maybe a different kind of interface between state and local. And if we let service providers try to design this with us from the ground up, we're going to get a lot better outcome. Like when we're, when we're working on policy this year, I mean, our, our intent is to design a big table and let folks who are actually on the ground who actually have to do the paperwork and push it up to say, okay, what's working and what's not. And don't let turf and territory and actually politicians do have some value, right? Because I don't have (laughs) any, any sort of built in allegiance to, whatever protocol I'm in charge of enforcing, right? I'm trying to sort of look overall at outcomes and maybe bust through a bit of the the turf battles or the sort of the headaches and just, you know, I think you've got to do it without making the process totally opaque. And you can't say we're undercutting accountability, but it's like, what does accountability really mean? You know, yeah. what what is it that we're actually looking for? And not have 15 sets of metrics, but actually like, simplify this and really be clear about the outcomes and let the clients and the service providers serving those clients say what those are. I want the client, not just, not just even down the service providers. I want the people who are actually receiving these services to help us define what that is. And folks who say come out of, you know, their issue or back adhering to their medication or in a, you know, in transitionary housing now, or have gone through it. Um, those who've actually navigated this, they've got it. That's what we meant. I think Dr. Sharon and I, when we were talking about this new kind of stakeholder process too. I'm hearing kind of results-driven funding. And so what would be the mechanism, and maybe I'm in the weeds, but what would be the mechanism for for clients that are truly struggling, who are, are not as responsive to treatment, who are needing more services, and so it's longer and more intense to get to that outcome? 
how do we make sure that providers are not saying, well, okay, I'm going to only take on the easy clients because I can get them to an outcome and that'll only take me an hour a week. Whereas if I take on the clients who really need the services, that's 10 hours a week and I get paid the same. So I'm taking the, the easy clients. That is a great question. I think there are a couple of options and I'll speak from my experience as a clinician. When you have wraparound services like uh, full service partnership or FSP, where you're allowed to focus on the services that you need to provide and you have a limited number of people that you're responsible for providing those services to, let's just say that in order to qualify for that enhanced level of service, you need to have a person who starts out with different check marks against them. I mean, I don't like the word, but cherry picking is something that providers will do if they're told that this is what the end report card is, they're going to pick the students who are going to succeed. So this is giving providers more resources to treat those people that are harder to engage. And I say that they're the folks who have trimorbid conditions. Often there's medical problems, there's substance use disorders and mental health problems. And sometimes they have involvement with the criminal justice system because those are the folks that providers tend to shy away from. But let's just say that, hey, if you take on a population of folks and and look at it from a population management perspective that have all these other assorted problems, we're going to give you a little bit of a pass. We're also going to give you more resources We're going to allow your staff to have your clients assigned to them so that they can do more. And then let's just say that we'll have to adjust those outcome measures because we're not expecting all of these people, you know, they're not going to head off to get four-year degrees, but let's just say that we do things like keeping them out of jail, keeping them out of hospital, keeping them in community, which is really the the essence of what we're trying to do. What do we need to change policy-wise and practice-wise in order to make this stuff happen? Well, certainly legislation does help, but I think we need to think about what our community values. I think we need to get people to understand that mental health problems are just like physical health problems. I would say that in terms of one of the big things that our department is focused on, especially our director, is when does involuntary treatment become an option? And not waiting for the person to get to the place where they're in such crisis that their life is in danger, but let's just say that they've had a pattern evidenced by clinical interactions and a pattern of admissions to hospital and just failure to thrive, so to speak, that we can do some interventions a little earlier before it gets to the point where we really can't help them. I'll take medical issues as an example, and this is something that we've tried to change the legislation, but it's really within the law now, if someone's at risk of death, it's kind of very concretely interpreted as the person is suicidal, or they want to die by suicide. They're got a weapon, or they're going to jump. But really, they're more subtle versions of killing oneself slowly through not taking care of diabetes or an infection. I think those people, we need to have laws that allow us to reach them a little sooner so that we don't have to be so concrete. And also to know that our legal process is really cumbersome. We need to make it so that it's easier And I don't want to take away people's liberties, but right now, if someone does need, say, a a conservatorship, the court process is very extensive, very lengthy. It can take months just to get a hearing where you're in front of the judge. And then if that person requests a jury trial, then it takes even longer. And the reimbursement for a lot of these things just isn't there. So I would say that as important as putting in place policies that address the needs of people, is putting in resources because, you know, nobody wants an unfunded mandate, but often we're kind of told 
to do things like assisted outpatient treatment or full service partnership, but then we don't get the dollars to support that. We're hopeful that as we start looking at alternatives to having, say, law enforcement involved, that some of the dollars that were previously diverted to building incarceration settings and paying for law enforcement, we think some of that money should come to mental health. And we at times will need to partner with them, but there shouldn't be a failed first approach where you need to be arrested or hospitalized before you get these enhanced services. For our listeners who are feeling a call to action out of this kind of stuff right now, what, without like everybody just calling and emailing you with suggestions <laughs> that need to. I don't mind that. <laughs> uh, what do you encourage for our listeners who want to be part of this advocacy process early on and being able to help get this lifted to actually see this kind of stuff through? You know, in interfacing with not just my office, but I think the other leaders in the Capitol on this and doing it, you know, everyone's busy, but we're going to try to create space for this conversation. And, you know, we've got a, a bill we're introducing that is going to touch on this idea of defining relentless engagement and sort of scoping out what we actually meant in that op-ed we wrote. There are going to be a few other bills moving. I'm working on one with Senator Eggman, actually two with Senator Eggman around AOT reform and around medical condition and sort of changing how the 5250 hearing processes work. It's going to be a number of other bills, but I would just say, using the channel you've got with a very open Senate office here and joining some of our future roundtables and actually weighing in and taking the time to, to tell us your, your on the ground experience. And like, what does that paperwork headache look, look like that Katie's talking about there? Like we need that testimony and that data early. So I hate to answer your question the the way you said you wanted to avoid, which is just calling my office. But I think, (laughs) I think, uh, you know, I I do think it's going to, we want you to weigh in on our legislation and we're going to need to be, to kind of reach out beyond the capital bubble to to do that. And so I would say reconvening in those sort of more informal settings where it's not as postured as a committee hearing, but a place that we can actually do work um, will be big. And so it'll be both, I think the budget process will be very active this year. And so if if people are interested in a broader pilot, like I'm talking about, engaging their assembly members or their senators in wherever they live, especially if you're in the Southland here, we're trying to rally the entire sort of LA County delegation just as tip of the spear. But I think it's true everywhere. Kurt, you've been brave and you know entrepreneurial over the years to reach out and have these meetings with us, right? I mean, you've sort of done that legwork. And I I don't know what your experience has been, but like, hopefully it's been good where like, you feel like, okay, the phone's picked up and like, I talked to their staff or I talked to the Senator and doing that, that kind of engagement and bringing your expertise to bear with your member and saying, please go work with Senator Stern and this big group on our mental health reform. You'd be doing us such a huge favor because I need motivated legislators to put their sweat and time into this with me. All of my advocacy efforts, I'm always surprised at how human our representatives are when we do actually contact them. It's easy to 
get upset with people on social media and kind of de you know dehumanize all, all of people in you know 140 characters or less but <laughs> every time that i have reached out and, and worked uh, especially very proactively early in the process it, it has always been a, a very warm welcome we can help you and your listeners get their 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 sea legs here too we don't want this to be an intimidating process and um sometimes it feels like oh i'm, I'm calling my senator like are they really going to talk to me or not but uh we are public servants at the end of the day. And I think this issue, we're so desperate for like real information that I think you're going to find an open door. And if you don't on, if you don't find an open door in your particular district or your member is like, ah, not that into it, come over to us and we'll, we'll help you out. And then we'll send you back to them when we need their vote. <laughs> You'll arm them with some information. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Join the mental health army. <laughs> That's it. That's what it's going to take. And people who have a lot of other important stuff to be doing to take their time to do advocacy, that's the X factor. And it's so hard to ask you to do that because you have like trying to get through a pandemic, you're trying to do your job, trying to like live your life. And it's like, oh, and by the way, you have to be on the Zoom call with this state senator or this state assembly member. It may seem like superfluous, but I'll tell you, it, it can move mountains if you do it the right way. What was your favorite part about these interviews? For me, I loved the fact that we were calling both a person high up in Department of Mental Health and a state senator out on unfunded mandates and taking care of clinicians. And got their answers on the record. <laughs> and I'm glad that they responded to us well. That I, I think goodness. that... that <laughs> They both recognize it as a problem, and this is something where they were at least extremely polite. But I think that both of them have these kinds of considerations in mind, especially with the kinds of programs that they're talking about, where it takes long-term commitment and retention of employees to be able to build the trust in these kind of communities. And if we are going to keep people in these positions, they need to be compensated as some as, as a as a job as a career that is there to actually work on this problem and i know that anybody in any of those positions who's going to get their feet held to the fire there that i'm impressed with the responses that they gave and that gives me the courage and the hope that we can continue to advocate for if we're actually going to fix this we need to take care of the clinicians as well and I think there was hope I saw as well around being at the table. After our conversation with Senator Stern, he invited us to to have more conversations. And with, with Dr. Bonds, we were also seemingly welcomed into ongoing conversation. I just feel like these conversations are both important for our audience, but I think it's also important to recognize that speaking out and showing up can impact the conversations that are happening as well as potentially shift how policies are implemented or even programs built. Next week, we're going to return to our regular programming for a little bit. But as we continue with this series, part of the extension of this is looking at how these very same clients that we're talking about on this policy end of thing end up interacting with some other systems. And so the continued focus 
within this special series here on fixing mental health care in America, we're going to be talking with people who work with severe mental illness in jails, in hospital emergency rooms, and continuing to explore how all of these things are interrelated, especially when it comes to Senator Stern's comments around all of the different departments that we end up having mental health treatment be subservient or second thoughts to. And so to really be able to create a streamlined mental health system, we have to look at all of the places where mental health is being provided. And we know, and we've already started reaching out to some of you, but we know that you're on the front lines. And so we're hoping, dear modern therapists, that if you're resonating with this, if you have uh, something to add to this conversation, this is an ongoing process, this series that we're putting together. And we still have time for more interviews and more interchanges around fixing the mental health system in the United States. And so please, please, please reach out to us. You can certainly send us an email over at podcast at therapyreimagined.com. And you can certainly join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and join the conversations there. But we'd love to hear your perspectives on this as well, because this is not just the two of us, you know, blazing this trail, but actually getting real stories from real modern therapists. You can find all of our show notes at mpsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy, and a very special thank you to Senator Henry Stern and Dr. Curly Bott. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. I think we're good. Yay! Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 